Good morning. It's Wednesday, the 20th of December, and this is Govind Rajathiraj coming to you from Mumbai, India's financial capital. Before we start, you can join this podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and YouTube, among other streaming platforms, at 6 a.m. weekdays in India, 8:30 a.m. in Singapore, and 7:30 p.m. the previous evening in New York. Our top stories and themes for the day: IPL 2024 fever is on. Auctions see new records for players. More ships divert to avoid Red Sea tensions. Crude oil prices rise. Resilient remittances into India hit a fresh high of 125 billion dollars in 2023. And SpiceJet makes a go for Go Air. And diamonds are forever again for now as they return to the markets. This is a core report with Govind Raj Athiraj. The markets and oil. After a slow Monday, the Indian stock markets picked up on Tuesday, though later in the afternoon, with the BAC Sensex rising about 122 points to close at 71,437, while the Nifty 50 ended up 34 points at 21,453. Now the rupee, which we track somewhat closely, as you know, fell by nine paise to settle at eighty-three rupees nineteen paise against the U.S. dollar on Tuesday. And dealers appear to feel that the rupee might have actually ended weaker were it not for positive dollar flows into the stock market and relatively steady crude oil prices. Remember, forex experts that we spoke to in the last week had all projected that the rupee would be weak and/or would continue a journey on a sliding path. Friday was a very good day for the rupee actually versus the dollar when it jumped 27 paise on one day and crossed 83 rupees to touch 82.90. Elsewhere in macroeconomic news or more like insights the government informed the lower house of parliament that the share of agriculture in India's GDP has now declined to 15% in the last fiscal year from 35% but that's in 1991 or over 32 years ago. Now the fall is not surprising in itself considering it's over 3 decades But the agriculture minister did say that the decline was not because of agricultural output fall, rather an increase in industrial and services sectors. Tension continues in the Red Seas. Shipping major AP Moller Maersk has said it will redirect its vessels to sail south of Africa via the Cape of Good Hope to avoid the Red Sea conflict area, where. Houthi militants have attacked several ships with drones and anti-ship ballistic missiles. About 20 Maersk vessels waiting on both sides of the Suez Canal will now change course and sail the long way around the continent. The Copenhagen-based company said in a statement on Tuesday, reported by Bloomberg. A shipping industry veteran the core spoke to yesterday said a diversion around the southern tip of Africa could add 7 to 8 days to sailing time and of course the additional costs remember there's more fuel and the additional or overall extra cost of running the ship and of course the delays Musk transports about 15% of the world's containers at sea On Monday the United States said that it had agreed with allies including the United Kingdom Canada and France to create a naval task force to counter attacks on ships in the region On Monday afternoon the US Secretary of Defense said America and its allies including the countries I just named agreed to create that naval task force to counter attacks on ships. This is an international challenge that demands collective action Secretary of Defense Lloyd J Austin said in a statement. Coming up now is our energy segment supported by the India Energy Week. 
European natural gas prices surged as much as 13% amidst the most concrete sign yet of disruption to energy flows since the start of the war in Gaza. Remember, the disruption is not because of what could happen at production, but more in supply. Now, Brent oil futures were traded higher on Tuesday after rising as much as 4% in the previous session. The energy segment was brought to you by India Energy Week, set to start on February 6th next year. More details on indiaenergyweek.com. Another steel giant takes shape. Nippon Steel Corporation will buy United States Steel Corp for about $14 billion to create the world's second largest steel company and the biggest outside of China, with a key role in supplying American manufacturers and automakers, according to Bloomberg. The deal ends months of uncertainty over the future of U.S. steel, which incidentally is an icon of American industry and, of course, like I said, a key supplier to the automotive industry. For Nippon Steel, Japan's biggest steel producer, the transaction provides a large foothold in the American steel industry at a time when U.S. demand is poised to benefit from rising infrastructure spending. ArcelorMittal was also reported as a potential buyer. SpiceJet makes a go-for-go air. Some aviation news. India SpiceJet is considering an offer for bankrupt carrier GoFirst, the cash-strapped airline said on Tuesday. When I say cash-strapped, I mean SpiceJet, because just a few days ago, it raised about 2,200 crores to get its grounded planes back in the sky. SpiceJet said it would make the offer, the details of which were not disclosed, after conducting due diligence on GoFirst's resolution professional, the official involved in conducting the airline's insolvency process, according to Reuters. GoFirst stopped flying in May this year, but the stock price of SpiceJet was flying indeed, with the price rising about 7% to hit more than a year's high. Analysts were surprised with SpiceJet's late-in-the-day bid, given its old problems and rather continued problems with maintaining schedules in recent months with some of its aircraft grounded and some flying but not managing to keep customers and passengers satisfied. Remittances hit $125 billion. The remittance economy into India is still growing despite slowing down a bit as compared to the previous two years. India still leads the pack by far with 2023 remittances touching $125 billion with Mexico next at $67 billion, followed by China at $50 billion and Philippines at $40 billion. Remittances grew at an estimated 4% at the World Bank, which, by the way, was slower than the previous two years. But the projection is that growth will now slow down next year as growth, that's gross domestic product or GDP for the globe or world, also slows down, according to the World Bank's migration and development brief released over the weekend. Based on the trajectory of weaker global economic activity, growth of remittances to low- and middle-income countries is expected to soften further to 3% or around 3% in 2024. The United States continue to be the largest source of remittances. An interesting insight is the cost of remittances. The World Bank says remittance costs remain persistently high, costing 6.2% on an average to send $200 as of the second quarter of 2023. Now, compared to a year ago, sending money to all regions was more expensive, with the Middle East and North Africa being the exception. Banks continue to be the costliest channel for sending remittances, with an average cost of 12% followed by post offices 7%, money transfer operators 5.3%, and mobile operators 4.1%. So, if you are an entrepreneur in the finance or a fintech space looking for disruption, pretty sure you've already zeroed into this, but not finding it that simple to crack it, is my sense. 
I reached out to Dr. S. Irudaya Rajan, Chair of the International Institute for Migration and Development India and also Chair for the Global Knowledge Partnership on Migration and Development, the World Bank, Working Group on Internal Migration and Urbanization. And I began by asking him how he was seeing this $125 billion figure and the trends in migration. I think it tells you what one of the important lessons or one of the important facts from this is that migrants and remittances are resilient. I think resilient. And we are back to the normal, no longer new normal. We are back to business. And even the increase, what they predicted, something like 10%, I would expect it should be more. I think that maybe the remittance is probably still underestimate. We may not even counting how much gold comes here. It's only the remittances through the banks and other sources. So that maybe informal remittances which were started during the TV during COVID, I think probably increasing. So, and partly because India is having a currently having a huge demographic pivot. We have a lot of young people are leaving. And we used to hear only South India was leading migration, but now the trends are changing. We are seeing a huge international migration from Uttar Pradesh, Rajasthan, Bihar. It all indicates North is picking up and North is picking up. It's going to be a huge remittances coming to India. So not just 125 and it will be much beyond that. Much beyond that. Many parts of states like Kerala and other parts of the country are dependent more on remittance income than maybe others. What's your sense? Is there any continuing impact of that either in a positive or any other way or any other trends that you're seeing in that regard? I think the remittances dependent families, both in India and the different states, are probably increasing, both internal and international migration, anyway. Because we are now talking about international migration. When many states in India, they also depend on internal remittances, you know, going from, say, Kerala to Orissa or Kerala to Jharkhand or West Bengal. You know, I think that is also happening. I think that in Kerala, what we expect is probably one out of five households completely probably depend upon remittances. It is almost the trend for the last 25 years since our first Kerala migrants are starting in 1998. So this is almost that one-fifth of the household in Kerala depend on remittances. And what are the other states' trends? We don't have a survey like what we do in Kerala. So we are unaware of that. But we have to look at it, something new trends which is happening. Very important is that though we receive $125 million as remittances, I think a lot of the money is going back to those countries like US, UK, Canada, and Australia in the name of student fees, student migration. I think student migration is also fueled by the remittances because the household which receive remittances, they are investing back to their children and then getting into the what is so-called green pastures where they can get permanent residents. So that trends will be likely to be you know, changing in the few years from now, if that happens, probably when we talk about America is sending more remittances, I think that trend will go because we have to probably depend upon more on Gulf countries, Southeast Asian countries because they are leaving the family which motivate them to send remittances. I think this is something we have to keep in our mind. That's interesting. You're currently doing a large survey in Kerala. Can you tell us about what you're looking for in terms of data gathering and insights? No, this is nine round of Kerala migration survey being conducted in Kerala with 20,000 households, fully funded by the government of Kerala through non-resident Kerala Affairs Department. The survey will be completed very soon. 
And this is also completing 25 years of the Kerala Medical Survey. And the trends are just coming up, you know, but I don't have the final results. But then, like the elections, you know, you have one round of counting, then you will say something leading, somebody is trailing. So if that type of results you want to say to me, only thing is I can say that migrants are resilient. So probably that what we got, the estimate, we got close to 2 million Keralites were abroad in 2018, which was the last survey we conducted. And I expecting probably the similar trends. So we expected a decline in migration, partly because of the huge return migration happened during COVID-19. Not just in Kerala, not just in India. It happened in Nepal, it happened in Bangladesh, yeah. Pakistan. I think they are bouncing back. I think that is the, some trend I see it right now. But the full research will be available uh, mid next year. Right. Uh, Dr. Rajan, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you very much and hope to see you some other occasion. IPL 2024 gets ready to kick off with some big auction numbers. IPL 2024 will kick off on March 23rd, 2024. That's not too far away for an eight-week schedule. The mini-auction of some 333 players, meanwhile, started off in Dubai on Tuesday as the 10 franchisees tried or aimed to jig or rejig their teams as they kitted up for the country's greatest cricketing tournament and spectacle. In a sure sign that the bets and stakes are bigger next season, Kolkata Knight Riders or KKR bagged Australian fast bowler Michelle Stark at a record price of 24.75 crores or close to 25 crore rupees. Earlier, Australia's World Cup winning captain Pat Cummins became the costliest buy in IPL history after fetching a whopping 20.5 crore bid from Sunrisers Hyderabad, which of course was beaten shortly after. There were many more deals, all of which pointed to a tournament fueled by plenty of big money and deals for the next year. I reached out to well-known cricket columnist Ayaz Memon and I began by asking him how he was reading the record bids for players. Yeah, I mean, this is the mini auction, but they call it a mini auction because when you have the main auction or the big auction, all of the players belonging to all teams plus new additions and subtraction which, which may happen, they all go into the auction pool. That's going to take place a season later, which means next year. Maybe around this time, you know, give or take 15-20 day window might differ. But basically, it's before the start of the next season. So that's going to be the main auction. And when it happens, the main auction, usually it holds for three years. That's the horizon for which players are bought and or not bought in the IPL. But just before the mini auction, there are windows open for trading players. A player may want to kind of dissociate himself from a franchise, but there are clauses and conditions involved in that. And the franchise might want to dispense with a player. It can happen. And some extraordinary developments can also take place, as we've seen in the case. All within the rules, of course, it has to be within the rules of the league, like Rohit Sharma, Hardik Pandya coming back to Mumbai Indians and this time coming back as captain. So, you know, to effect his transfer, Mumbai had to trade Cameron Green to Royal Challengers, Bangalore and so on. It's pretty much like what happens in football globally. So, uh, I think that while the IPL has not had so many transfer windows for many years, so it might seem a little new, novel, but I think it's more or less now following the pattern of football. So what's the big headlines this year in this mini-auction, Ayaz? I think the big headline really is the price barrier which has been broken you know, by two Australians, namely Mitchell Stark and Pat Cummins. Gone for 20 crore, 50 lakh or 20.5 crore. 
The other has gone for 24.75 crores, which is Mitchell's stock. I thought after Pat Cummins, there wouldn't be any player exceeding him for the simple reason that not just that the price was phenomenally high, mind-boggling, but also because Pat Cummins is such a compelling cricketer. He's a terrific fast bowler. He's captain of Australia. He's led his team to victory in the World Test Championship, the recently concluded ODI World Cup and so on. Mitchell Stark, terrific white ball player. So therefore, obviously suited for this kind of tournament. But he's had a he's just blown hot and cold for so long where the IPL is concerned. He hasn't played since 2015 in the IPL. He's been bought a few times. He's been in the auction. But he never turned up. He, you know, he had injuries or he, he was taking rest and so on and so forth. So I find it quite intriguing that despite his background, he's been paid such a huge amount by Golkota Knight Riders. I mean, the business question, I guess, here is that what determines a player's price and how do people make the bids as they make them? And what are they thinking when they pay, whatever they pay, including such high amounts? Look, I mean, the T20 format itself is evolving. It's not very old. You know, it's the first T20 World Cup was played only in 2007. The first IPL season was 2008. So it's just been 15 seasons, the 16th season. And all kinds of things crop up. The way franchises approach a season, the way players approach a season, the technique of playing in T20 is also evolving and so on. And therefore, they're kind of trying to find players who will be, you know, bang for the buck. In a very limited period of time, we have to do a lot many things. So, for take for instance, Pat Cummins or Mitchell Stark. Now, both are terrific fast bowlers. They've been, you know, two of the finest bowlers Australia have had and match winners both. They can also bat a bit, which becomes very important. Because if you're just a rank bowler and you can't contribute to the bat, that might limit a team's prospects. And they are also outstanding fielders like most Australians are. So, as they say, they're 3-in-1 cricketers with a very good track record, at least playing international cricket. If not, because as I mentioned earlier, Stark has not played the IPL too much and he doesn't play any other leagues across the world. The one thing also which works in their, to, to, those, to their advantage, players like Stark and Cummins, uh, Govind, is that they don't play any other leagues. They are not, apart from Big Bang, which they play you know, very frugally, I would say, though it's their own tournament, because they're so preoccupied with international commitments. And then, they have limited exposure, which is in the IPL. So it kind of keeps them fresh, if you get what I mean. And that's what I think franchises also like. Especially where bowlers are concerned. Because bowlers and fast bowlers can break down. You know, they, have, they are more injury prone. The workload factor becomes more important for them. But it also shows, in my opinion, this, this auction. This is a mini auction. Remember, it's for one season. Next season, we don't know what's going to happen. That the value for high-performing players or presumed to be high-performing players, is going through the roof. That means franchises are willing to cough up top dollar for players who they think will win them the title. I think that's becoming paramount. And I'll just juxtapose it with what happened with Mumbai Indians. You know, I mean, Rohit Sharma is one of our greatest white ball players. He's been captain of India and so on and so forth. But the last three seasons, Mumbai haven't won the title. And somewhere, he's not dispensed with from the team, but... He is no longer going to be captain. It's going to be Hardik Pandya who's going to be captain. So, it's not the conventional system in cricket that there's a bunch of selectors in the national scene, national cricket scene, who pick players. Here, the owners and the franchise guys who run the franchise, they take very hard calls, it might seem, from the outside. But they take those hard calls because winning is a priority, not just playing. Right, right. Ayaz, thank you so much for joining me and sharing your perspectives. 
Thanks, Govind. Google to pay $700 million. Alphabet's Google has agreed to pay $700 million and to allow for greater competition in its Play App Store according to the terms of an antitrust settlement with the United States states and consumers disclosed on Monday in a San Francisco federal court for Reuters reported. Google will pay about $630 million into a settlement fund for consumers and $70 million into a fund that will be used by states according to the settlement, which still needs a judge's final approval. According to the settlement, eligible consumers will receive about $2 each and may get additional payments based on their spending on Google Play between August 2016 and September 2023. Google was accused of overcharging consumers through unlawful restrictions on the distribution of apps on Android devices and unnecessary fees for in-app transactions. Google did not admit any wrongdoing. Diamonds are forever for now. The world's two biggest diamond miners are selling stones again after the industry all but halted supplies in a desperate attempt to stop a collapse in prices, Bloomberg is reporting. Russia's Al Rosa in September halted all sales for two months and was followed by buyers in India, the leading cutting and trading centre, voluntarily banning imports. India's diamond industry, via its main associations, had said two weeks ago that it would lift that voluntary ban on imports thanks to an expectation that demand would recover and prices of polished items, which is the real diamonds, and I'll come to that in a moment, to stabilize. Debeers also allowed its customers to refuse all gems that they contracted to buy. Debeers is the mining company. Alrosa had begun selling rough diamonds again at the end of November, offloading more than $100 million, sources told Bloomberg. Debeers, which held its last sale of the year at the start of December, apparently sold a similar amount. Now, Demand for diamonds have been seesawing from doing very well during the pandemic to practically disappearing at the end of it. The other counterforce has been lab-grown diamonds, which have caught the fancy of customers in many countries. Alrosa's recent sales apparently went to a handful of mostly Indian buyers, according to Bloomberg. And while Dibias has resumed sales, it also allowed buyers to reject goods that they contracted to buy. On that note that diamonds are forever, at least for now, have a great Wednesday ahead and see you tomorrow same time. That was The Core Report with me, Govindraj Ethiraj. Do stay connected with more of our coverage at The Core. You can check out our website or sign up to our newsletter for our exclusive stories, one in-depth feature a day on www.thecore.in. Do also track us on LinkedIn, where we usually post synopses or extracts of our top stories and interviews. We would love your feedback on how we can make business more interesting and relevant, including, of course, India's vibrant manufacturing sector. So write to us at feedback at the core.in. And thank you once again for listening. <laughs>